Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Think Like a Human. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Will Cilio, and today we're going to be looking at identity and gender in the workplace to see what, if anything, philosophy can tell us about this issue. Here with me today, we have investor and business extraordinaire April Underwood. April worked at Google before joining Twitter in 2010, rising to director of product before leaving to become the head of platform at Slack in 2015. In 2016, she was listed in Forbes' 40 Under 40 Influential Business People. She left Slack in 2019 as the CPO, Chief Product Officer, to focus on her personal project, Hashtag Angels, an all-female investing firm. Our conversation branched out into discussing media and advertising, the progressive movement and politics, and it was really fascinating to hear her perspective on these themes. Gender in isolation is a tough question for philosophy, but I found that it dovetails quite well with identity, something that is a well-discussed issue in philosophy through questions regarding the self, consciousness, identity over time, etc. And in the past year or so, through an ethics class, I read an article by Miranda Fricker discussing the idea of testimonial injustice, um, and I felt like her analysis of the concept resonated very strongly uh, with the experiences that I've been hearing about from friends who have had such gender bias affect them, uh, whether in the workplace or elsewhere. And this idea of testimonial injustice is the idea that we are implicitly partial when attributing credibility to other people. Um, and this plays into both identity and social power. People of certain societal groups are considered more or less credible sources of information, simply based on their identity, because of um, internalized biases of the listener. And so, as a result, uh, certain people's claims get systematically discounted and on the flip side, certain people get too much credit. And this is specifically a wrong because you can do harm to someone's capacity as a knower. However, Fricker interestingly specifies that for any blame to be applied to the listener committing the injustice, they must have been in a position to know better. And she gives a stunning example from a 1960s novel, and um, which has been later turned into a film, The Talented Mr. Ripley, where Mr. Greenleaf, a wealthy older man, discounts the evidence that Marge, his son's girlfriend, presents simply because she is a woman. And I'm going to give you guys a little quote uh, from her essay. Whenever there is an operation of power that depends in some significant degree upon such shared imaginative conceptions of social identity, then identity power is at work. Gender is one area of identity power, and, like social power more generally, identity power can be exercised actively or passively. An exercise of gender identity power is active when, for instance, a man makes possibly unintended use of his identity as a man to influence a woman's actions. He might, for instance, patronize her and get away with it. Marge, there's female intuition and then there are facts as Greenleaf says to Marge in The Talented Mr. Ripley. 
He silences her suspicions of the murderous Ripley by exercising identity power, the identity power that he inevitably has as a man over her as a woman. Even a flagrant active use of identity power such as this can be unwitting. The story is set in the 50s, and Greenleaf is trying to persuade Marge to take what he regards as a more objective view of the situation, a situation which he correctly sees as highly stressful and emotionally charged for her. He may not be aware that he is using gender to silence Marge, and what he does is perhaps well-intentioned and benevolently paternal, but it is no less an exercise of identity power. So, as I said, uh, this sort of testimonial injustice plays into gender, but also identity, and it also strays into ethics and questions of how to deal with this in everyday life. Um, and so I had a lot of fun mulling over these topics with April. Hope you guys enjoy as well, and here we go. April, thank you so much for uh, sitting with me down on the podcast. This is going to be super fun. Absolutely. I'm excited to be on your first season. Yeah, let's... <laughs> Yeah, that's a loaded statement. Let's uh, <laughs> let's see where that one goes. Um, I was there. Th- I was there when when it when it started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. Um, well, I was just um, yeah, in just uh, looking around and trying to find stuff for the podcast, I f- came across this article about Coach Oriyama, who's this this legendary uh, University of Connecticut women's basketball team coach. Oh, okay, got um, it. And it was like uh, he's he's won. I think they UConn is like amazing. Yeah, amazing and everything. Yeah, so and he's they, he's oh, the coach of UConn. For a long time. Yeah. Okay, got so, it. So yeah, um, and he has. There was just it was just like he, um, Coach Oriyama has some advice for people in the workplace: stop treating women like women. Um, from his from his basketball yeah. practice, and especially for him, it, it manifests in the way that he gives feedback. Uh, he's not going to try and like sugarcoat things as as there's like I guess a tendency to do so. Right. Um, and yeah, I just want to hear your thoughts on that idea. Um, like, don't treat for 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 working in the workplace. Like, don't treat women as women. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I think that um I I think that there's actually a lot of complexity to that. I mean, it right. it sounds like it's a, a great idea. Statement. It sounds yeah. like a great yeah. idea. Um. I mean, certainly, I'm all for not paying women like women, since right. historically that's sure. been yeah. Yeah. apparently not as uh, not yeah. as good as men. Um, but um, but it, but I think it's complex. I mean, when I think back on my own career, um, I started my career as uh, as a software engineer, and then became a product manager. And product managers are responsible for you know kind of answer, answering questions like you know why should we take on this project or why should we build this product and, and who is it for, you know, who are we building it for and what does success look like? And then they work with engineers and designers um, to actually build the product, whether it's software or shoes or whatever it is. Um, and I, and I did that in software and I will say early in my career when it was the early 2000s and I was a software engineer, I really went to great lengths, lengths to assimilate and to be sort of one of the guys, you know, I mean, the way that I interacted with my colleagues, you know, I, I could be a tomboy and, you know, could, could do all of that. Uh, and it made me more successful because I didn't, um, people didn't feel like they needed to treat me differently. In fact, they sort of you know, my goal was for them to forget that there was a woman in the room in a lot of ways. 
I will say though that um that there's a lot of downsides to that. Um, yeah. Um, totally. Particularly around, you know, a wide variety of issues related to, you know, parental leave and, um, and, and also just culturally the idea that like that being a man is the default and right. that like, you know, any deviation from that, being a white man, let's be honest, is the default and any deviation from that is sort of inconvenient and like, you know, is sort of, you know, expecting people to, you know, you know, have to make accommodations or whatever is like, I, I, I take issue with that. And I think that the current era, at least in the tech industry, where um, with things like the Me Too movement, focus on equal pay, um, and also just like a sort of cultural shift that has become more progressive in a lot of ways. I think um, I have said a couple of times that a couple of years ago, I felt like I finally came out as a woman. I like actually started talking about being a woman and started talking about women's issues in the workplace and um, and that's freeing as well, because I get to go to work and be myself now. And um, I don't need to hide, you know, the aspects of my life that are, you know, in quotes, womanly or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, so to answer your question, you know, I think um, I think uh, I don't th- I think his point I it's a he. Right. Yeah. His point, you know, I think probably bears, um, you know, has a lot of merit in that um, certainly, you know, women athletes should be given, you know, they should be coached, you know, with the same level of intensity and feedback and all that sort of stuff um, and that, you know, maybe it has historically been considered not appropriate for women. But I think also, um, you know, ignoring the fact that they are women and that there's really great things about about being women right. um, and that there are examples for other, you know, these these women athletes, including like the U.S. Um, women's soccer team, are great examples for women and for men. I, I think that, you know, it's a miss if we just decide that, like, we're going to pretend that everybody's the same as well. Um, you sort of miss the actual sort of texture and diversity that comes with having people with different backgrounds and different experiences. And it's unrealistic to think that everybody you know wants to be managed or coached or whatever exactly the same totally yeah that all makes a lot of sense and that's um you made a very good point that it kind of puts the onus on um on the the person who's different in a certain way like for you and your career like the onus was on you to um to act differently to you know kind of put this i mean it should be an, an uh, it should be just your life like you are a woman but you had right. to put this almost to the side yeah um to like be comfortable and and to be professional in that sort of a scenario and that does yeah that totally doesn't make sense okay like, yeah yeah absolutely and it's um i think you know people do their best work or you know accomplish the most when they get to be themselves when they don't have to put on a, you know, a, 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 you know, a literal or figurative costume and, and right. be something, you know, and sort of be like everybody around them. Um, and, um, and, and it's also just, it's fair, obviously, for right. people to, to not have to go to those lengths um, to try to be something different. But, yeah. you know, it, that's idealistic. Sure. Um, you know, there's probably no forum in the world where that's like, you know just like completely true but it's a you know i think environments where that's at least a stated goal that people are working towards that people you know we, we talked about this some in my role at slack um as chief product officer um uh you know both within slack for the employees for uh, the people that worked at slack but also the software we were building 
is was intended it is intended to make it so that people can bring more of them their real selves to the work that they do and to how they communicate huh and, that's that's interesting and it's something that customers are hungry for employers know that they need to do that and that's a shift like that right. was not you know when i was software engineer in 2002 or when i was a product manager in 2010 you know people were not thinking about these things um, yeah. and now in 2019 they are which is which well, is great progress yeah yeah. What are some of the ways that Slack uh, tried to make those changes in the software that you guys were developing yeah. um, to promote individuality and, and, and that way? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, you know, at its core, you know, Slack is this communication platform that actually really transfers a lot of the, um, um, a, a lot of, um, you know, how it gets used to regular employees. So rather right. than being, you know, a, you know, a lot of, a lot of software tools, whether it's like email mailing groups or whatever, you know, things that people use in the past or Microsoft SharePoint or something like that. Usually the IT administrators, like a very small number of people who were not really responsible for the culture so much as they were responsible for just how the software got used in a very mechanical way would actually be responsible for all of the setup. And so instead right. in Slack, anybody can create a channel. And so what the, and those channels can even be private. And so what that means is that, you know, um, within Slack, I'll say, for example, there are all sorts of channels where people um, commune about different issues that are not strictly related to the workplace. So, like, there's a channel for expectant mothers. And, you know, it's funny because I, I was at Slack for the last four years and I had a child for the first time while I was at Slack. So I almost forgot uh, that that's abnormal. And I was talking to other women about um, how they don't have that community within their workplace. So you're going right. to work 40 to 60 hours a week and you're going through this experience and you could have other colleagues that are going through it with you. And maybe they know who the best doctors are on your insurance plan or they know where the, the you know, the nursing you know, room is in the in the office and what the code is to get in or whatever, like simple stuff, right. but also the emotional aspect of just connecting with other people going through that and and that could happen within that can happen within a tool like slack because there can be a channel that somebody initiates setting up and it can be a private channel and so you don't have you know your boss you know looking over your shoulder right. while you're talking about breastfeeding or something yeah. which you don't really want um nope. unless you're unless your boss is in there too which i was in there obviously with some of the women who reported to right, me right, but right, that's right. a different you know, which is amazing um uh -huh. that, that's got to be a pretty unusual that you would actually have that happen so so anyway so tools like slack you know really just at their foundation do that but then i'd say also the reason that companies wanted to use something like Slack was because they had the perception that they needed to um, create an environment that felt modern and that felt uh, like it created a workplace culture that millennials and other young people would want to join and stay in. So as an example, when I would meet with companies in, in finance, they would say, we have to use Slack because we cannot hire engineers to work at our company if we are not using these tools. And it's in part because they're great tools and they make work more efficient, but it's also there's this they're this signal for what kind of company um, yeah. you are and what that says about your culture. And um, and so, you know, we saw that play out a lot. Cool. Cool. Um, I'm going to change tack a little bit. One of the main things that comes up in philosophy with um, when, when gender is brought to the table 
is the idea of stereotyping and mm-hmm. how how stereotypes play into just like just social interaction, but also um, I guess where they come from and and kind of going back to uh, what you were talking about with having to kind of assimilate yourself into the group and um, act like a guy almost. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on the on the kind of the other side, what are some stereotypes for yourself that you've had to overcome in the workplace? Um, have you have you ever encountered issues with that? Yeah, and absolutely. I mean, I think that um, that you know, there's a wide variety of stereotypes that exist. I mean, there are stereotypes for people that work in tech in general, and then like you kind of drill down, and it's like you know, well, engineers in tech, and then like male engineers in tech, and right. male engineers in tech who worked at Google. And male engineers who worked at tech and Google who were SREs. <laughs> like, it's like, there's so, I mean, especially working in Silicon Valley where you've just got so many people in the same place that have a lot of common experience, either direct or like one or two degrees removed, it, you, these stereotypes, you know, um, do develop. Um, and they can be very, very specific. And so people can be very confident in them and very quick to apply them right. when they meet somebody. So, you know, for myself, um, you know, first of all, I am, I live, I've lived in the Bay Area since 2005, but I'm originally from Texas. And so, you know, one of the earliest stereotypes that I ever encountered uh, was that I had the impression, and I, I think it's accurate, that, um, that, that there were stereotypes about people who had accent, Texas accents, Texan accents. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, um, you know, I, from a pretty young age, honestly, was fairly obsessed with figuring out how to not speak like a Texan. You don't. And I don't. And I don't. <laughs> yeah. But I, I worked hard at it. And yeah. I think that um, I did that because I was running away from this idea that, you know, that these stereotypes exist. And I, and I absolutely think they exist. I mean, I think that... Um, when, you know, when, uh, somebody from one of the coasts hears, uh, you know, a person on the phone or, you know, interacts with them in a customer service experience or, or even in the workplace and they have a Southern accent, I think that, you know, there are a lot of people that immediately make conclusions about them. Maybe that they're not very smart or that they are, um, you know, Christian or um, or you know conservative or whatever it is and so so I mean honestly that was one of the first ones that I that I was aware of because I I could see that it would potentially limit my ability to go get where I wanted to in the world and so I stopped using the word y'all <laughs> I really worked hard at it um, and um, you know and when I get around my family I or you know I have a beer. I can still slip back into it if yeah. I want to. Um, and there's something about it that feels a little inauthentic or even snobby that I have that I have done that. It's right. natural now. It's not like I'm thinking about it when I'm speaking. But I do think that's an interesting thing about stereotypes. When you can see that they're being applied, do you do you rebuke the idea that they should be that there should be prejudice against that stereotype in the first place? Or do you just like take whatever steps you need to to try to shed that? Um, you can't shed your gender, um, right. but there are things that you that you can that you can shed. You can you know raise yourself in economic class, mm-hmm. you know through you know over time. You can choose which schools you go to and that sort of stuff. And um, but you know there's probably always a little bit of a question in the back of your head of like, well, should I have had to? Um, yeah, totally, totally, and also not even like. <laughs> 
should you have had to, but would you have rather, I mean, now looking back on it, do you want your Texas accent back? Right. Exactly. Would you, would you, would you want it back? Yeah. Yeah. Which, um, and I think the, I think the answer is no, and I. But I also think you know. Obviously, I I, I could get it back very easily. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, but I do think that that I do think that, that prejudice was real. So you so so it was it was like sort of the cost of doing business, you know. Um, right. To right. um to you know to inter start to interact with people that were not from where I was from, and to and to ultimately move out here. Um, so, so that's, that's one, you know, that, that's, that's one example of stereotypes. And then obviously just, you know, uh, well, maybe it's not obvious, but as a woman in a male dominant industry, there are just, you know, there's just so many, um, sort of pitfalls and, um, and, you know, it's a minefield of stereotypes because, um, on the one hand, there's, um, there, you know, the, there's a, this catch 22 and it's been heavily researched which is that women are considered oftentimes to be soft-spoken. Um, women um, oftentimes, you know, even in the presidential debates, people will oftentimes not remember women as having even spoken. Um, um, but then if they speak too much, <laughs> then right. they then suddenly they overestimate. And so like there is this there's this like really thin, thin line for women, which is that um, it's very easy to be perceived as what I think people oftentimes think women are, which is passive or meek or, you know, um, uh, shy or whatever it is. But then the minute that you actually assert yourself, even, you know, even perhaps far less than the men in the room, then people have this memory that like you talked a lot or you, you gave long answers or whatever it is. They have these memories. And when, and when you actually do, when, when researchers really hold that up to hard data, it doesn't shake out. Like it, people actually really do experience women different than, differently than they expect, experience men. And I think that's tied up in a lot of those stereotypes. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I guess also um, with those, the stereotypes problems that you were, that you were hinting at, or just, or just, yeah, um, the the female gender stereotype in, in the workplace. Like, do you feel that it's, I don't know, for, for myself, it's, it's often hard to see because I'm not necessarily discriminated on, on the basis of gender. Yeah. Um, so like when, so it's not like I've, I have, like, I feel like this direct exposure to all these sorts of experiences that 51% of the world experience. Right. Um. So I guess just just a like an actual curious, actual curious question. Like, do you feel that when those sorts of um, encounters, I guess, happen, are they mostly? Do you feel like it's mostly like, like oh, this person was being careless, perhaps, or maybe not malicious, but like really, or but like but like really biased. Like, what where do you feel like it's bias? No, most of the time it's unconscious bias. I mean. And, and the way a lot of these things play out are the, you know, the some of the classic tropes like, you know, a woman will speak up in a board meeting and say something and the conversation will move on. And then a man will say the exact same thing and people are like, oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> and they remember it more. And so, you know, um, so, you know, I don't think that that's everybody in the room being hateful or not liking right. that woman right. or whatever, but 
but there's a there's some underlying respect that's not there you know when the man says it people are really listening and tuning in and believing that there's a possibility that what is the words coming out of his mouth are going to be important and actionable and there's an underlying belief there that is you know on a very subconscious level not there oftentimes when women say the exact same things right yeah especially in advertising i guess we see all sorts of stereotypes and um the way i see it is kind of like there are these stereotypes in advertising that are being played to specifically to generate income to to make business etc but also at the same time those stereotypes are you know the stereotypes that are being portrayed are then they're trying to use these stereotypes to play on people and that's just good business but at the same time those stereotypes are then being reinforced, like kind of like a feedback loop. Um, how do you feel about that in general? Try, like trying to do good business versus trying to do what's right. Yeah, I mean, um, so I've worked on advertising products um, at least twice in my career. Um, and, you know, I, I think that you have to start with a recognition that advertising is inherently, I mean, it, it is... Based on stereotypes. Right, exactly. I mean, um, you can call them stereotypes or you can call them like personas or other. Exactly. Um, you know, sort of euphem you know, other words that are used to describe it in in an ad tech. But I mean the the whole idea of advertising is um, you know, to um uh you know, to predict to the best of your ability what type of person is going to be most likely to spend the most money with you and to go find them. And, you know, when advertising started, you were just, you know, buying, you know, you're buying, you know, a slot in the newspaper or whatever. You were reaching this really broad audience. And, you know, and and to be honest, you didn't really even know how much that, you know, the money you spent on advertising actually returned for you as a business. But with in the digital age, since we have the tools for people to be more and more efficient in how they spend their advertising dollars, they do that by being more narrowly and narrowly focused. So, you know, um, stereotypes show, you know, when stereotypes show up in advertising creative, and what I mean by that is like the actual, you know, whether it's a video or whether it's a TV ad or whether it's, um, you know, even an image, like, you know, what what ethnicity and gender are uh, are the people in the, you know, in the display ad that you see online. And, you know, and every once in a while there are these, you know, um, you know, sort of firestorms around something that like, to a certain part of the audience is, is plainly offensive or like really reinforcing some sort of stereotype that is, um, that has negative connotations that's unfair. And so that always like gets attention, but uh, the majority of the way the stereotypes actually plays out is in targeting. So, you know, with ads, you, you make the creative and then you target them to your audience. And when you target them, you're choosing, you know, do you, what gender, age, um, you know, potentially profession, income level. Um, you know, there's, I mean, that's the whole point of online advertising is that you're able to be very specific. I mean, certainly in the like Facebook and Twitter era where, you know, these platforms have an increasing, increased amount of information about you and your preferences. And, you know, you've told them a bunch of information about them in your profile. And so, you know, they, um, 
But, you know, it, honestly, what's, what's funny is that that shows up in the more creepy factor when people are like, oh, it's so creepy that right. I looked at that one pair of shoes and now it's following me around the internet. Or... <laughs> um, or why am I getting um, why am I getting uh, ads for uh, pregnancy tests? Well, because you just flipped your account to to married, and there's enough a large enough percentage of the audience of women your age that have just gotten married are thinking about having kids. So now you're getting that, and that feels creepy. So it's just interesting when you talk about stereotypes because I think that a lot of times the way that the actual stereotypes get a lot of attention is in the ad creative. But the reality is like the whole process from soup to nuts is just, it's just, it's based on like, you know, heuristics that are, you know, that um, are, you know, are data driven that allow these companies to try to get more and more efficient spend on their dollar. And in doing that, they're choosing a more and more narrow audience and people are sort of seeing these facets of themselves reflected back to them and the ads that are being served and that makes them feel uncomfortable. Um, what do I think about it? I mean, I think that's the way that that's just the way that it works. Um, I mean, I think obviously consumers always have a voice, and if they decide to leave those platforms or opt out of ads um, or give you know feedback whenever there's something that really hits a nerve with them and makes them feel really um, you know offended or violated in a certain way, then 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 advertisers typically pay attention to them. So it kind of feels like the system works the way that it should, um, in my opinion, as as a technologist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's also another aspect, I guess, of advertising and like TV that I've noticed, um, especially coming up like with the Me Too movement and how these sorts of yeah, uh, issues of gender have just been brought to the forefront. Um, mm-hmm. Suddenly, like say I'm I'm watching a um, I'm watching an old movie and you just you're you just yeah like in, in old movies and old TV shows um, those stereotypes that do show up have proven to be often very problematic. I often find myself wondering what to do in those circumstances. Do I, um, do I not watch old television because, um, it's supporting this sort of, uh, these, these, these sort of stereotypes and and this sort of stereotyping that, um, can have an effect on people even today? Or, um, you know, is there a way to reconcile the nostalgia and the desire to indulge in something from the past with, um, with the sort of uh, social trends of today. Yeah, it's a great question. I, um, I mean, I've experienced that with when you know you pull up a movie that you remember loving from your childhood or your teenage years, and you're just horrified. Yeah. <laughs> when yeah. you show it to other people, you're like, "Oh God, I forgot about that part." I and... was specifically thinking of Casablanca. Um, oh, really? Because my, my parents and sister just watched it. Oh, okay. I haven't watched okay, it yeah, in a long time. I mean, but... yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's not the worst, but it's yeah. like there are just like a few points where it's just like, ooh. Right. And you're like, all right, how do I feel about this? Like, what am I, what do I do? Or, or how, how you feel about it is weird. I, that's, that's for right. sure how I feel about it. Well, I mean, I but guess, what do I do about it? You know? Well, I mean, that's entertainment. And so if you, if you, if entertainment leaves you feeling weird, then you probably aren't good. Then it like isn't fulfilling its purpose right. in right. some ways. Right. I mean, right. Maybe right. it has some like historical value in like sort of seeing the way things were. I mean, I do think we'll probably show a lot of our kids like these things, more out of a in a spirit of like yeah like here's some context for how things used to be right um and and um 
you know, and I'm, I would imagine that, like, there's been a trajectory of that for a long time. I mean, I, rem- sure. I remember, like, even as, even when I was a kid, I feel like already Blazing Saddles was, like, was, like, kind of canceled. It was, like, it was, like, just not a, like, it, it's just, you know, like, even, even by the 90s, you know, or so, it already felt like it was, it was not okay and that it wasn't funny anymore. Right. And so I think, you know, I think there's a lot of, um, so I, 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 did, I think, I think media has a shorter shelf life than we all would like to think that it does. Um, maybe mm-hmm. music doesn't, um, but I think, you know, TV and film seem to, um, find themselves oftentimes pretty rooted in a specific point in time. Um, and then when you watch it later, it just, you know, as they say, it doesn't age well. Huh. Yeah. And I don't know what happens to all of it. I don't know if there's a certain time period where then like the like the a grace or like I don't know amnesty kicks in or whatever where it's like, well, this is more than 20 years ago, so like we're okay with it. But I mean, I think right now in the current climate, there may be things that are like 5 years old where it just doesn't that that just have such just reinforce gender roles um or reinforce um, racial stereotypes yeah. that like already um are not um considered very funny yeah yeah and i mean i've it's impossible not to just have in the back of your mind um the idea that the world is just like you know the, the rate that the world is changing is rapidly increasing and increasing and increasing right. especially today yeah for um, sure but, you know, I mean, I, um, you know, here in our own town of San Anselmo, I saw a next door thread a couple of days ago where, you know, some of our fellow residents were, you know, uh, just, just actually like playing back to the tropes of like whether the U.S. women's soccer team was actually any good. What? Because yeah. some, you know, because how would they stand up against a men's team? Oh, and God. it was just like, I, and that's where it's just like, I, I do think I, it feels like the world has moved forward, but it's not evenly distributed. No. And, um, and I think like, you know, the elections certainly bring that into sharp relief. The one coming up, I think is going to be, unfortunately, a really hard reminder, I think, for all, for a lot of us that feel like the word world has moved forward, that there are people that are doing everything in their ability to hold it back yeah and they are people that were already in power because nobody else has a real has it nobody has any skin in the game to keep things the way that the, the way they were except for like wealthy white people mostly men yeah um, everybody else has everything to gain from this progressive movement yeah so. yeah i hope this is not too personal so no. tell me if it is um but Knowing Matt, um, your husband, I'm sure there is absolutely no issue at all about um, division of labor in the household. Yeah. Um, but I'm just curious as to how that plays out in your life, like the division of labor, and like, like, is it more of a, um, is it more of something that you guys are acutely conscious of, and and like work to make sure that you know things aren't unequal, or is it something that just kind of comes naturally? No, I think me. it's more, yeah. it, it, I, I do think that it is relatively natural. I think that, I think it's unusual. Uh, I, I would say, you know, many women that I know uh, do not have that same division of labor. But I think that, um, I think there are some compensating factors that um, lead to the division of labor that we have. 
which is uh, that, as, as you know, my husband um, uh, uh, has been a parent before. Right. So um, and I have a stepdaughter who is 22, and I have a child with my husband who is 18 months, which means that my husband is, I mean, I jokingly refer to him as an experienced hire because he, he actually has, he has an advantage over me and that he has actual experience through right. the entire process of raising a child right. from zero to 22. Um, I don't have that experience, but I do have, um, you know, my default instincts. And then I have all of the societal norms around yeah. what um, what mothers do and what wives do and that sort of stuff. So I, I imagine a world in which he and I were figuring it out together. I don't know that the division of labor would be the same, and that's not a knock on him. I what I find is oftentimes the case is that in in the realm of the household, the women are the ones that are learning what needs to be done. They're talking to their mother or to their friends or whatever, and they, or or they're you know they're talking. They have all they have all the information sort of flowing in about how right. to be a mother. In part, also because the dads don't actually have as many great role models around them, yeah. and the dads are not necessarily you know texting each other all the time about what's going on with the baby. But I think that that's changing. And I think the fact that Matt, my husband, has done this before means that he actually was able to be a source of knowledge in the process, which changed sort of the footing between us and actually allowed me to feel comfortable that, like, the the baby was going to make it through the night, even if I didn't know what I was doing. And I don't think that oftentimes that's the case for new moms. So, um, so I think that, so I think that, you know, I do think that the intentions are good and virtuous, as you Mm -hmm, say, mm -hmm. but I do think that there are other factors that have to be taken to sort of compensate. And I almost, I, I've encouraged him to write like a, 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 do a graphic novel on like how to be a dad or something like that, Um, which I mean is a huge compliment and he's very, very good at it. But I also just think that there are not really resources um, for dads, just like there are not resources for little girls about how to be philosophers or, you know, (laughs) or software engineers and things like that till recently. And so in society, we actually have to compensate in both directions. We need to like help men um, be, you know, sort of, attenuated and educated and motivated to actually want to be skilled and do their part in the realm of the home. And then at the same time that we're doing the same thing for women in the workplace. Uh, And it turns out you actually have to do both for it to work because they are pulling on the same resources, which is like the, the, the time and attention of, you know, the adults in the household. And so as a society, we have to figure this out. Right. That's perfect. Great. I love it. Great. Um, April, thank you so much for for joining us on the podcast. Awesome. This is so much fun. fun. Thanks for having me. Of course. So I learned a lot from this episode, and I hope you guys did too. Um, A few main areas where I felt like I really took something interesting away and uh, just want to highlight. First of all, Fricker. Um, I really found her article uh, to be a very interesting perspective to have in the back of my mind during this discussion with April. Um, Especially because as a white male, I feel like gender is something that I'm certainly less aware of, simply because I'm not really affected by it. Um, But this conversation was definitely a good reminder that because it's something that I'm not aware of, 
means rather than being able to ignore the issue, um, the onus is on me to ask the tough questions and try to see the other side. I really enjoyed where April took us when I brought up the subject of advertising, and I think it's interesting that she had in mind a completely different way that stereotypes play into advertising when I brought up the subject. I feel like that's an area of life that affects each and every one of us through the ads that we view and interact with uh, online and in TV, etc. But as regular consumers, we really have no visibility into it. Um, also, the points that we touched on with media really made me think more about larger scale and permanence, something that I feel like has been a theme throughout the podcast. Um, just like how, despite our deepest desires for things to reach a uh, comfortable status and stay the same, things keep on changing, and we can see how the rate of that change just keeps on increasing and increasing. Two years ago, I went to a talk with technologist and futurist Ray Kurzweil, um, and this, this same theme was one of the biggest things that I took away from that talk, just how the rate of change in the world as a result of Technology is literally increasing exponentially, um, and I can see that same idea applied here, that maybe we shouldn't be surprised or dismayed that media gets dated and recognize that it happens faster and will only um, happen faster yet in the future. It is an interesting question, though, of um, what's going to happen to all of it, kind of like those vacation photos that you're never going to look at uh, where do they all go, um, etc. However, uh, despite the change, one thing that April said stood out as a good, strong reminder. Um, she said, we think we've come a long way, but it's not evenly distributed. And yeah, I resonated with that. And I think that it's visible in the world events, um, like the Kavanaugh hearings and the political climate that we live in. And that brings me to the uh, the paradox of, or what I like to think of as the paradox of normalization. Um, just like the, the push and pull of wanting to normalize women in the workplace, but, but needing to make a big stink about it until it actually is normal. Um, and we're certainly not there yet. But it's also an interesting question to wonder at what point we will uh, be there, like at what point we'll kind of be able to calm down about it all and even looking further ahead, it's it's interesting to wonder what the next issue uh, like that will be. Um, and it kind of makes sense that there is going to be one because, you know, we're all humans and stereotypes and unconscious bias is just a part of human nature. Um, a really amazing book that I uh, read recently is called um, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. And it talks about how as we grow older our minds become less plastic and start to form habits of having, you know, X, Y, and Z reaction when presented with X, Y, and Z stimulus. And so part of how we deal with the large and rapidly changing world that we live in is to draw these sorts of connections or create um, these types of stereotypes and then rely on them in life to guide us so that we can unconsciously complete tasks that would have previously required conscious effort. And so it was just, this, this talk was just a good reminder that 
that's something that we all need to stay aware of um, and fight the good fight against unconscious bias. Anyways, thanks for listening, and I hope that today's show was not only fun, but perhaps set off some trains of thought to new and interesting destinations. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the episode, have ideas for future episodes, or just general feedback about the show, feel free to shoot me an email at uh, wcilio20 at cmc.edu. Thanks again for listening. I'm Will Cilio, and this is Think Like a Human.